This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. Yes, we did just come back from our student retreat this week, and while I was not among those who made the perhaps dubious choice to stay up till the wee hours of the morning to watch the Grand Budapest Hotel, there were few, only a few snatches in between our many uh, sessions and meals and swimming times and times of fun and fellowship that I could steal away and work on this message. So to be honest, I was like in the taxi coming up the hill, scribbling like the last few notes. So if I do say anything heretical, it may actually have been the car that suddenly merged into traffic without signaling and not, you know, my own, my own devious heart. But I will leave you to be the judge of that. As we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's listen to the word of God together in your Bibles and on the screen behind me. Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. 
We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We are, taking pain, we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he's zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Well, I'm happy to tell you I'm not preaching this sermon as an emergency measure because our budget is desperately short as we reach the end of the year. I mean, I would have no shame in preaching that message if we needed to, but by the grace of God, our church budget is fine. God has graciously supplied, plentifully supplied our needs through your faithful and generous giving. And I want to say on behalf of the church board and your brothers and sisters, we are really thankful for all of you who have given as God has supplied and directed you in whatever way you're able to give. That really has been a huge encouragement to us and to our faith. And we look at our budget, and we'll be sharing that with you in a few weeks as our, our year end is up. And we are really thankful and we're really content with what God has given us in terms of resources and a church building that we can rent. And, you know, we have more than enough to keep up the basic operations of this church and to pay the salaries we need to pay. We're doing fine in that way. And in fact, because of your giving, um, we've been able to do a lot more this year in terms of caring for the poor. We ha we've had targets in the past, like let's give at least 10% of our church budget to outside causes. I don't know what the final numbers are going to be for this year, but I'm pretty sure it's over 20% this year we've been able to give to caring for the needy outside of our church. And I'm hugely proud of this church for doing that. Um, and for the grace of God that has enabled us to give to the Kara Woman Shelter here in town, to give so much money to these food parcels that we've been distributing in Tbilisi and in villages throughout Georgia. I feel a deep sense of the pleasure of God over this church in how we've been able to do that. And whatever other decisions we might regret as a church or feel a little embarrassed to present to Jesus, I am 100% confident that Christ will not rebuke us for having given too much to care for the poor. I feel absolutely confident, and you should feel confident, that when we give to the poor and the needy, we are expressing the generous, caring hearts of our Lord Jesus. And frankly, I would love for us to give an even greater percentage this next fiscal year. But honestly, it's, it's not about the numbers. It's not about amassing, you know, increasing that pie chart or bar graph in our budget presentation. And we're not praying or seeking external donors or strategically witnessing only to wealthy business people so they join our church and then increase our budget. You know, three years ago when I became the pastor of this church, we had a lot of support from the U.S., and that has since dried up. And to be honest, I'm not sorry about that because I don't want us to be looking for wealthy people from the outside to be doing what God has called us to do. And... I believe that the vision of Jesus for this church, it's not about the numbers or the money or the budget. It's about hearts 
being filled to overflowing with the joy of the Lord, us being filled and empowered by the Spirit of Christ, freeing us from the love of money, and giving us a deep sense of meaning and purpose and joy as we fix our eyes on his kingdom. Having enlarged hearts beyond the few people in this room to the wider church of Christ and the kingdom of Jesus in this world and how we get to play a meaningful role in that. God wants our financial giving to be really part of a greater offering of our entire selves as living sacrifices to the glory of God. My very first sermon I preached 21 years ago, yeah, in, uh, on a short-term missions trip in West Africa, in Conakry, the capital of Guinea, and it was a Pentecostal church. The full title was like, Fire of God, Salvation, Revival, something, some, some, something, you know? And uh, before the message, there was the offering, and those dear brothers and sisters were dancing up the aisle, presenting the offering to God. And I even joined in, I hope I didn't ruin it too much with my, you know, shaky Dutch-Canadian freestyle dancing. But what a wonderful expression of the joy of the Lord that ought to be the case when we bring our offerings before God, not out of uh, grim duty or guilt or a sense that God is desperately needy and we need to help our, our poor and needy God out, but a deep sense of privilege and joy in sharing in the grace of God that is at work in the world. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we meet Paul the fundraiser. We think of Paul the theologian, Paul the missionary, Paul the charismatic visionary who ascended to the third heaven. Paul was also a fundraiser. And his collection for the church in Jerusalem was his obsession for 20 years. And we read about this collection, different details of it, in the book of Acts, in Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Again and again, Paul goes back to this offering that he's spending years raising for the poor people in the church in Jerusalem. There had been a council in Jerusalem where Paul had met with Peter and James and John, the pillars of that mother church in Jerusalem, to discuss what it meant for the mission of God to go beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentile world. And it was a successful council. They agreed they were not going to put any restrictions on forcing Gentile converts to become circumcised. They could come to the kingdom just as they were. But there was one condition that Peter and James and John laid on Paul, and it was this. All we ask is that you remember the poor. And Paul was like, hey, that's the very thing I was eager to do. I would have done that for free. I love caring for the poor because I'm following the example and the command of Jesus himself. Remember, in the Gospels, the final test of discipleship, as we stand before the judgment of Christ, is how we have cared for the poor. Did we feed the naked? Did we clothe the hungry? Did we give water to the thirsty? Did we visit our brothers in prison. That is the test 
of whether we are really following Jesus with our lives or just uttering empty words that mean nothing. And so Paul is focused on this collection for the poor in the church in Jerusalem, the mother church that Paul, of course, had persecuted himself before being radically converted to the service of Jesus. But why Jerusalem? Why this obsession with this one church in Jerusalem? And yes, it was a big church, and obviously it had a lot of poor people, but there were a lot of other churches that Paul had planted with a lot of other poor people. Why is he so focused on Jerusalem? For Paul, this collection, this offering, this gift is about more than relieving some immediate problems in one church. It's about God's much greater vision of unity between Jew and Gentile. And through Christ, through the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, God has expanded the people of God with this Israel at the center to bring in the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And that was hard for a lot of traditional Jews to accept. A lot of Christians from a traditional Jewish background had a hard time seeing the Gentiles as full members of the family of God. And I think Paul imagined himself returning one day to Jerusalem and standing in front of the congregation with this huge offering from Gentile churches all throughout the Mediterranean basin as a powerful sign of the power of the gospel and as a powerful sign of this new oneness that the Spirit of Christ had forged between Jew and Gentile. If he imagined Peter and James and John and all the elders and all the leaders and all the members of that church in Jerusalem lifting their hands and giving praise to God for this powerful, very concrete, very welcome evidence of the amazing grace of God going on throughout the world. And I think there's something even more than this, because Paul had, was deeply immersed in the Old Testament prophets and in Isaiah and Habakkuk and Zechariah and Micah, there are these prophecies of the sons and daughters from far-off lands that God has called, streaming up to Mount Zion, bringing with them the treasures of the nations. And I think Paul was ambitious that he would get to be the one who would bear the first fruits of the treasures of the nations back to Mount Zion. God is calling us he would say to his churches, we're the ones that God is calling to be the first ones, to have the high privilege to be the first ones to fulfill what God has promised. So for Paul, this collection is not just another fundraising campaign for some project. It has deep theological and prophetic significance. That is why Paul is obsessed with this offering. And again and again in his letters and in his meetings with these churches, he goes back to this offering. It's funny, 2 Corinthians 8 is all about money, and yet Paul does not use the word money once. 
He talks about ministry. He talks about partnership. He talks about fellowship. He talks about eagerness. He talks about abundance. And he talks about grace. Seven times in this chapter, Paul talks about the grace of God. All these synonyms for this act of giving. This is not a project. This is a gift meant to bind the people of God together in love as an act, as an expression of the grace of Jesus and as an act of worship to God. And Paul's very first words in this chapter, we want you to know about the grace of God. The grace of God that has been poured out on the churches in Macedonia. Something amazing has happened in the churches in Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. Something so unusual, Paul has to give praise to God for what can only be the powerful grace of God at work in people's lives. These churches have endured a severe test of affliction that has resulted in extreme poverty. And we know at least from Paul's two letters to Thessalonica that there were harsh local persecutions, official ones perhaps from local government, certainly unofficial but just as painful persecution where people were losing friends, they were being rejected by their families, they were losing businesses, they were being fired from their jobs. And keep in mind in the Roman Empire, there was only a very small sliver of elite rich people Below that, quite a tiny middle class, and at least 70% of people in the empire were living just above, or in fact, just below subsistence level. People were struggling to find nutrition to feed themselves and their families. And so becoming a Christian in these towns meant social mobility downwards. Imagine yourself just a step or two above destitution and even starvation. And coming to Jesus means taking a step down towards those things. And amazingly, despite these harsh conditions, these three churches are growing. And Despite the many reasons they have to be discouraged, to be depressed, to be anxious, to be crying out in, in pain for help from others, these congregations, when Paul visits them, to his surprise, they're experiencing incredible joy in Christ. First Thessalonians, Paul writes, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. We can imagine these little churches gathering underground, in secret, hated by everyone, yet with shining eyes, singing praise to Jesus. I want you more than gold or silver. Only you can satisfy. And through the mysterious alchemy of the Holy Spirit, their joy plus their extreme poverty 
somehow overflow into incredible generosity to other people. And when they heard about this collection that Paul was taking up, he perhaps didn't even intend on mentioning it to these very poor believers. They didn't react as Paul might have expected, like, could you please also add us as recipients to this collection? Could you put us on the list? Because there are some desperate needs in this congregation. They begged not to receive, but to give. They wanted to be put on the list of donors. And to Paul's astonishment, they're pleading with him, refusing to take no for an answer, for the privilege, literally the grace, of participating in this offering. The reason is, they had first given themselves to the Lord. Before they gave any money, they had given themselves. Like when the offering plate came around, they literally had nothing in their pockets, but they climbed, as it were, climbed into the plate themselves to give their entire beings to Jesus as a living sacrifice for the glory of God. And because they'd given themselves to Jesus so fully and completely, they had long ago surrendered autonomy and control over their money. It's my money, but I belong to Jesus. So in the end, this money is just as much Jesus as, belonging to Jesus as I myself am. And somehow, they didn't just give according to their means, which were very tiny in the first place. Paul writes, they gave beyond their means. Literally, they gave beyond their power. Remember, the theme of this whole book is power in weakness. And this church, which has been, these churches which have been so devastated and financially are extremely weak, if not dead, somehow the power of God is manifested through their very poverty into generosity. And somehow, through Christ, these Macedonian Christians are doing things they should not be capable of doing. The finances somehow don't add up, and yet a collection is gathered and offered for Paul to take along. This church of poor day laborers living in squalor, families who don't know where their next meal is coming from, and most likely, many slaves. Slaves had the ability to earn a tiny bit of money for their masters, which they would carefully save up so that toward the end of their lives, they would have enough to buy their freedom back from their masters. And imagine these slaves taking the money for their own freedom and instead giving it to Paul to care for people they had never met in a city they would never see. Mark chapter 12 describes Jesus sitting down outside the treasury in the temple and watching 
one person after another coming to put their money into the offering basket, into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And then Mark tells us a poor woman, a poor widow came in and put in two tiny copper coins, the very smallest coins available, which together made a single penny. And Jesus calls his disciples around and says to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. She offered her entire self to God. She wasn't giving money, even large amounts of money, as a way to fulfill her duty to God and then keep him at a distance. She had put herself into the offering basket. And somehow, in God's eyes, that giving out of poverty in the kingdom becomes riches. For those who give large amounts but withhold themselves from God have given something that is ultimately worthless. And now, in Macedonia, in these churches, Paul is seeing the widow's might being enacted over and over again as the grace of God ripples through these churches. And he's so moved by what he's witnessing that he has to write to the Corinthians and inform them of what the grace of God is doing. I don't think we should read this chapter as Paul's very clever, manipulative way to create rivalry and to manipulate by jealousy and even shame. To shame the Corinthians into giving more money. Like, look how much even these poor people are giving. Why aren't you giving more? You know, Corinth was a rich city. It was a port city. It was a trade city. And the church in Corinth had very rich members, including the city treasurer. And, you know, in the Roman Empire, there was this cultural value of giving that was all about exchange, about you could pursue honor and prestige by giving to city projects and worthwhile public works in order to achieve recognition for yourself and have your name written on monuments. And there's this danger that the Corinthians could get sucked into a similar kind of thing with this offering, where they're looking around the other churches and getting into a contest, so their name will be at the top of the list, the list of big donors. So they can get into the platinum level of giving and be the ones who get the most prestige and the most recognition. That would have been the natural cultural impulse. Paul is very careful not to push those kind of buttons. Instead, Paul's thinking, as he sees this stuff in Macedonia, as he sees these dirt poor people putting all they have into the offering, he's thinking to himself, man, I would love to see this joyous response in Corinth. Every time I go there, I'm overwhelmed by these spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecies and words of knowledge and tongues and interpretations. God is clearly moving in power in that church. And wouldn't it be amazing, along with all those other gifts, 
to see a spectacular gift of giving in this church. You know, we don't tend to think of giving as a spiritual gift. But it is a grace, according to Paul. Something he's called all of us to exhibit. And I suppose some of us have a special call from God to excel in this gift. And presumably, if God is blessing you financially, I think we can assume he's given you that gift, and now it's your call to express that gift, just as spiritual as standing up and preaching or leading worship or praying in tongues, also a gift of the Holy Spirit. And he exhorts these Corinthians to excel in this grace of giving. Not as a legalistic command, meet these giving targets or else, but as a way of testing and demonstrating that their love for Jesus and love for other people is genuine and not just words. Paul's trying to bring out the best. As a good pastor, he's trying to bring out the best and the people to whom he's ministering. And to do that, Paul has an even higher model than the Macedonian church, a much higher model, and that, of course, is Jesus himself. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The grace of Jesus, the generosity of Jesus, is not that of a rich benefactor who keeps himself sealed off from the people he's helping. Jesus is not at some black tie dinner and auction, writing a large check, and then getting into his limousine to go back to his mansion. Jesus willingly enters into poverty himself. He doesn't count equality with God, something he can hold on to and hoard for himself. He takes on himself the form of a servant and descends to the very lowest place, to the place of a servant. And he's obedient even to death, the death of a cross, on the cross, the shameful death of a slave hanging there, naked, helpless, with no control, in an experience of total and absolute poverty. And he's doing this out of love for desperately sinful, desperately needy, desperately poor human beings, as an expression of God's bountiful, overflowing grace to the undeserving, to pour out the lavish forgiveness and favor and delight of God on people's lives. And when in faith we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we hear his words, freely you have received, freely give. And what Paul is all about is grace-motivated, grace-powered giving. And the heart of generosity is far more important than the numbers in God's economy. What Paul really wants and what God really wants is not money. God doesn't need your money. The cattle on a thousand hills are yours. He could immediately fix Every problem of need in this world without our help, what God does want is our 
transformed hearts, people who have become like Jesus in expressing his grace. Here's how it works. The grace of Jesus fills our hearts with joy as we receive it and then overflows in giving to others. And Scott Hafman in his commentary points out that for Paul, the basis of giving is not what the other person has given you or what they might give to you. It's based on what God has already given you in Christ. And unless you yourself have humbled yourself to accept the grace of God with open hands without being able to give anything in return, unless you have stood before Jesus as a beggar, only able to receive, only then can you be transformed to give. And God is honestly not interested in your giving if you are unwilling to receive that. Please, do not put anything into the offering. Do not give to this church or to this kingdom before you yourself have offered yourself to Jesus to receive his grace from him. You know, this church in Corinth had actually been the first one to sign up for Paul's Jerusalem project. That's actually, as we'll find out in chapter 9, that's what had caught the attention of the church in Macedonia when they realized what was happening down in the south. And in Paul's relationship with this church in Corinth, there had been some hiccups, to put it mildly. It was a rough and bumpy ride, and this offering had been delayed. And now Paul is appealing to them through Titus, let's finish this job. Don't let your generosity go stale. Let's finish what we started. In 1 Corinthians 16, he, he had instructed the Corinthians every week, set aside some money to give to this project and let that amount accumulate. And of course, Paul wants the Corinthians to give in proportion and only in proportion to what they have. Whatever you give is great, as long as you give it eagerly, as long as you give it joyfully. Paul's saying, don't feel guilty if you don't have much to give, as though your few tetri in the offering are somehow not going to make any difference in the kingdom of God. That's thinking in fleshly terms. God wants you to be free from dependence on money, even very small amounts of money. The heart issue is the same. Jesus wants all of us to be free from a slavish dependence on money. Where we're relying on money to give us security, comfort, meaning, and pleasure which is a slavish idolatry that's going to destroy us, and God wants us to find that in Jesus. And when we give even the smallest amount as an expression of that freedom, God can multiply that for his kingdom. Paul doesn't want anyone in the Corinthian church, especially those at the bottom, so to speak, financially, to impoverish themselves for the offering. Give. Don't impoverish yourself. Don't give beyond your means. This is not about, he's not using the Macedonians to try to make the Corinthians do the same thing and then create a new kind of imbalance. He's saying, no, the point is fairness and equity and equality in the family of God, the worldwide family of God. 
The global church is a fellowship. It's a partnership. It's about sharing. You know what? God has already given the worldwide church of Jesus all the resources that it needs. In every way. Financially, spiritually, in every way. They're just not distributed equitably, and that's by God's design, so that we learn to share with one another as members of one family, so we can act in love and in relationship. Someone, I don't remember who, was sharing with me their experience of being on a Russian train trip for the first time as a Westerner, and they bought themselves a sandwich from the cart, and they unwrapped the plastic and started eating their sandwich from by themselves, and they realized the rest of the, the Russians in the compartment were taking all their food and pulling it together on a common table so they could share from what they had. It's this communal way of thinking where we all take what God has given us, we put it on the table so we can all feast together. Whatever it is that we have, better a meal of vegetables where love is, Proverbs says, than a fatted calf with hatred. And this is what the family of God can be like. You know one danger of having inequality, even in giving? Because Paul's saying we all have the opportunity to give and to receive. The church is not divided into givers here and receivers there. We all have opportunities to receive from others and to give to others, materially and spiritually. And the danger is that In the flesh, we all prefer to be the helper than the helped, right? Because when I help others, I have this very agreeable feeling of superiority. I feel kind of godlike. And I'm the one with my generosity changing people's lives. Man, that feels amazing, right? And it, it affirms something in me that's kind of unhealthy. And then we put the helped person into a position of inferiority and obligation towards us. And that is deadly to any feeling of real family or fellowship. And Paul's saying, yes, we all have to at times help one another, but we also have to be willing to be helped by other people. And if you are the kind of person who is first to sign up when someone else needs a meal, but you would be horrified to ever ask someone to make a meal for you, You're not genuinely sharing yourself with other people. You're trying to play Jesus instead of being a fellow needy person in this fellowship of grace. Equality, fairness, sharing, participation. As it is written, Paul says, citing Exodus 16, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. When the manna fell from heaven... There was enough manna for each day. Some people tried to hoard that manna in their jars, and lo and behold, the next morning it was all rotten and filled with worms. Well, those who, for whatever handicap, were only able to gather a little, found their jars filled as God had miraculously created equality in the one people of God. And now Paul's saying... There is a newer and more profound miracle happening. There's going to be equality and fairness and sharing, not because of some 
external miracle of God filling up jars, but by an external miracle of God changing people's hearts so they voluntarily and with joy and love share with one another. And that is, in fact, a greater miracle of the Holy Spirit. You know, money can do funny things to people. Money can corrupt churches and leaders who see profit so easily. Because as Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And the second part of the chapter, you can summarize in a few sentences by saying Paul just wants to administer these funds so that this expression of love and worship isn't marred by accusations of financial impropriety, whether they're true or whether they're false. And Paul's sending multiple delegates along with these funds and this collection to make sure that everything is completely above board. Financial matters in the church of God should always be done with maximum transparency, beyond what is required. And anyone here who would like to see the budget of this church and how we handle money, you're welcome to ask Eloise back there. Please show up to our membership meeting in a few weeks when we schedule it. We have no secrets to hide, okay? We don't have secret funds and embarrassing, hard-to-explain, you know, expenses happening in this church. We want to do everything in the open before God and before you. Money can be a useful tool, and we do need it in the kingdom of God to do the work of Jesus. It's a terrible master, and it can make us, if we love it, selfish, grasping, and hard. And it can become... A gift of God can become an idol that we turn to for security, for provision, for comfort, instead of Jesus. And it, money has the potential to destroy our souls, to cut off our relationship with God and to other people. And Jesus invites us to use unrighteous mammon to make friends for ourselves, to create relationships, to prepare a place for ourselves in the kingdom. The kingdom is an economy of grace. And all of us here and in the thousands of other churches throughout the world, we're all linked in a relationship of giving and receiving. All of us are receiving. All of us are giving in the ways that God has called us. As the Spirit binds us together in the love of God and gives us the shared experience of grace. When you experience the grace of God in a profound way, you cannot help but want to express that grace to other people that God also loves. Grace has this strange property that the faster we get rid of it, we try to get rid of it, the more that God pours into our lives. And somehow it multiplies in our hands as we learn that it's actually more blessed to give than to receive. We must receive first and again and again from God. We're always in this position of receiving from Him. But then, when we're transformed by grace and begin to give, we begin to taste God's own joy in giving. Our Heavenly Father loves to give. He loves to give because God 
is an overflowing fountain of grace. Fountains overflow. God overflows in grace and joy and love. And we have the high privilege of sharing in that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father, and you have poured out so much generosity and kindness into our lives. Supremely in the gift of your Son, dying for us on the cross, emptying himself in complete love for us who are poor, weak, and utterly undeserving. And yet, you give and you give and you give. Lord, we pray that you would increase, that you would massively increase our sense, our experience of your generosity. Open our eyes to your good gifts in our lives, O Lord. And then, by your Spirit, transform us that those who receive would also give, that your grace would flow through us, Lord. Help us to be good disciples with the money that you've given us, with every blessing that you've given us. Not out of guilt, but out of joy, oh Lord. Fill us with the joy of your Spirit so that we can spread your joy to others for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.